Dear Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for your word. Thank you for life. Thank you for health. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for salvation. Thank you that we get to gather every week at a time like this to study, to learn, to grow. And by implication, to become more like you. I pray that even as we study today, that there is clarity. I pray that the truth of your word rings true in our hearts. I pray that we are able to see you in the scriptures. I pray that we're able to come to truth, regardless of preconceived notions, popularly held beliefs. I pray that we live here enlightened. We live here changed. In Jesus' name, amen, amen, amen. Hi, Lillian. How are you doing? Also, good to see you. All right. So, welcome, everyone. Thank you for joining early. Um, today, we are not going to First Thessalonians 4. Um, a couple questions have been coming recently. Last, I'm um, sorry. We didn't meet last week because I was at a wedding and I was at a wedding with some of you. <laughs> it was a good time. Um, <laughs> but by God's grace, I think we should be available for the rest of the year. God willing. Um, <laughs> unless Ayo decides to get married impromptu, then I'll have to take a break. <laughs> but other than that, I should be here for the rest of the year. Um, yes. Yeah, so as I was saying, the past couple weeks like the past two teachings we've we've uh, had conversations around suffering around um the goodness of god and then we ultimately ended up i can't remember who asked but a question was raised about job and how satan was numbered with the sons of god and stuff like that and i said you know what let's just have a session where we dedicate it to wrapping up all we've been talking about on suffering oh it was one year so thank one year for today's teaching <laughs> because um yeah uh and then we're also going to spend some time talking about heaven what exactly is heaven when i get to heaven do you know who i will see what would you see when you get to heaven <laughs> who is in heaven where does god live uh, where does Satan live? <laughs> I was I was joking with with the friend of mine, and I was telling her that uh, by the end of today's teaching, I will be I will teach you guys how Satan is a son of God and lives in heaven. <laughs> Do with that what you want. I'm just joking. Am I? We'll find out. Um, but as usual, I want you to get out your Bibles. I want you to get out your writing materials. I want you to follow through. And at the end of today's teaching, if there's anything you don't understand, first of all, probably try listening to the teaching again, read through the verses again, and then you can always reach out to me. My goal is to make clear what the Bible is saying. I don't have much to say. I just want to show you what the Bible is saying. All right. Are we ready? Are we ready, ready, ready? <laughs> get out your Bibles, get out your writing materials. Let us begin. Um, so just let's, we'll be going, we'll be going. At any point, feel free to raise your hand. Um, if you don't, if, if you're not following, ask a question in the chat. Uh, yeah, I just want us to make as much use of the time as possible. 
Is this our first topical teaching in JTT? I think so. Usually it's just expository where we go through the text. I think this is the first time we're just focusing on a topic, but that's cool. Let us start from Revelations 21. <laughs> Turn your Bibles to Revelation. Yeah, we are really entered. <laughs> Revelations 21 from verses 1 to 4. Hi, Demilade. It's good to see you. Hi, Daisy. Good to see you. We're just starting, so you haven't missed much. Um, Revelations 21 from verses 1 to 4. I read. It says, Now I saw... I'm reading from the NKJV, um, unless otherwise stated. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. But the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. Verse 2, Then I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. Verse 4, And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crime. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. These four verses alone is literally the summary of the whole Bible. Like, if you understand Genesis 1 to 3 and Revelations 21, 1 to 4, you understand the Bible. I'm not joking. We're going to see why. I just wanted to read this. We're not going to explain a lot yet. I just want to read this and then we're going to get back there at the end of today's teaching. And I believe it would make sense. It would make more sense. But um, for starters, hi, Lade, good to see you as well. One of the things we've been talking about is how a healthy approach to pain and suffering as believers. We've talked a lot about that in the past, like three teachings. Um, and there is an unfortunate tendency human beings have to jump into extremes, right? It's very sad, but if, if it's not one area, it's like, oh, we run all the way to one, to another area. And so, well, <laughs> today is International Men's Day. And now I'm seeing, there are two things that I'm seeing more and more. There's the hyper-feminist, oh, women, this, this, this. And then there's a backlash to that. While there is truth to equality, and, and now we see a growing group of hyper-toxic males as well that know who the women think they are. And it's just funny because, again, it shows that human beings tend to run into extremes. Balance is really not something that we we find <laughs> that comes to us naturally. And in theology, unfortunately, it's not any different. And so, when it comes to the goodness of God, it's very easy for someone to fall to an extreme of let's say his sovereignty and wisdom based on all i've said in the past couple teachings they're like well if i'm sick eh, god knows what he's doing if i lose a child eh, god knows what he's doing if i'm not doing well financially eh, god knows what he's doing and you take on such an approach that no matter what comes in life on one hand you would never be totally depressed and sad which is good because it is, a, it is one of the lessons of learning to trust the wisdom of God. But on the other hand, the devil would ride over you because you fail to understand his goodness. 
you've taken the teaching of God's wisdom and sovereignty to an extreme. And on the other hand, we have people that have run into extremes on the teachings of the goodness of God. We see that in the prosperity gospel, for instance, where it's that if you are sick or let me know if you sickness, if you're, let's say you're not doing well financially, all of a sudden you're not walking in God's best for your life. And it's as though you don't have enough faith. Let's say if you're still sick, people say, oh, you don't have faith. If you had faith, you would have been healed by now. As though the moment you have faith, God <laughs> must, do you get my point? And, and we start to see a kind of mindset where your sense of spirituality, your sense of worth is now tied to how good God has been in your life. In quotes, it's an extreme. It's an extreme. And the, the sign of a mature Bible student is someone that has learned to, to observe both sides and to learn both sides consistently. We hold true the goodness of God. We also hold true the sovereignty and wisdom in times where that does not seem, emphasis on seem, to be the case. And so what I want to do today before we go on is remind you that God is good. I hope no one left any of the teachings thinking that, oh, if bad things happen, well, God knows what he's doing. It's all good. Not necessarily. And we talked about it where the role of discernment. Paul prayed three times. He didn't just from the first time something bad happened. I was like, eh, God gives and takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. No, he prayed, let this messenger of Satan be taken away. Jesus prayed, if it's possible, let this cup pass. So you too, you will pray. If there is a contrary situation to the will of God in your life, you pray about it. You pray about it. So I want to remind you that God is good. Suffering is not a good thing. It is not in the will of God. In case you did not get me, I'm saying it very clearly. It is not in the will of God. Neither is sickness, neither is lack. That is not God's will. Do believers sometimes face suffering and lack? Yes. Just read Paul in 2 Corinthians. He said, thrice I was on at sea. I was shipwrecked. I was arrested. I was without food. I was naked. I was hungry. <laughs> A whole apostle. Imagine your pastor telling you, he says, arm robbers came to my house three times. <laughs> Say, ah, am I safe? Right? Am I safe? Say, ah. After I've played the blood of just over my door. <laughs> um, which was what I was trying to emphasize in the past teachings. So, do believers sometimes face this? Yes. Does it look like evil is sometimes allowed to, to, to prevail for the greater good? Yes. I mean, the death of Jesus, the gospel, the very message we preach is a message of how God handed over his only son to the evil in the world. Literally, that's the message of the gospel. God lets the devil or God lets human evil to overcome his own son. Why? So that many would be saved. That's the gospel. And so it makes no sense. From that, If that is the central message of Christianity, where did you get your theology from that bad things can happen to believers? How did you get there? The reason you are saved is because a very bad thing happen to the very best of us so you are no that's why just you are not how do you want to how how do you want to do it <laughs> you got here by receiving the evil that was perpetrated on the son of god and you think 
you will escape. How? So that's why you see Paul say things like, I complete in my body the sufferings that remain. <laughs> or you see Peter and John saying, oh, God counted me worthy to suffer for Christ. Now I share in his sufferings because they had an understanding that this very message we bore, or we bear rather, started on the back of unjust evil. <laughs> Does that make sense? I hope it's making sense. Thumbs up. It's, it's too early for me to lose you. <laughs> I, I hope it's making sense. All right, good. Um, and so, can God work good out of evil? Of course. And that is what he has always and always done. Always done. In fact, you read through the Old Testament and it's like God enjoys it. It's, it's almost as though God is looking for it at this point. He used the sin of, 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 of Adam and Eve to, to, to bring about this. You look at Jesus' genealogy. Who do you see there? Tama. Rahab. Ruth. These are people that, by, by, by if, if you're thinking, where would the, the son of God come from? It won't be a prostitute. It won't be a non-Israelite. But these were the very women that were mentioned as the people through whom God decided to save the world. You look at, um, David had many sons. Of course, God had said, David, through you, your kingdom is uh, Solomon, him and Bathsheba, that he chose. That one, he said, is this one. This one that you murdered, you, 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 you lost it and you killed. <laughs> is this one I want to use. That's God. Able to, to bring out good. From, 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 from the plans of the devil, bring out good from, from the folly of man. That is God. That is God. And that is what we've been teaching. That in God's wisdom, there are times where it seems like he, he's allowing evil prevail. And you're like, God, where are you? He's there. That is where the balance came in, that you can't trust him because he's going to bring out good. One of the examples we had was if Paul didn't get arrested, if Paul wasn't hindered so much, we're not going to have as many epistles as we do. So, of course, you can see how beyond just a few thousand Thessalonians that would have been saved, if Paul stayed there, now we have millions of lives that have been blessed just by reading First Thessalonians. That is God. That is God. Paul did not know, but he was able to trust he was able to trust. Nevertheless, what? I would boast in my weakness. For when I'm weak, then Christ is glorified. Or the strength of Christ is emphasized. Amen. So, can God work out good? Yes. We live in a broken world and God many times uses that same brokenness to advance his plans and purposes. But ultimately, let it never, let it never obstruct your perception of God's ultimate will. Again, emphasis on God's ultimate will. What is God's ultimate will? Revelations 21, 1 to 4. Where God is finally with men, dwelling with them, just as in the garden, where there is no more death, no sickness, no sorrow, no pain 
That is God's will. He is not the author, neither does he find joy in suffering, in sickness, in death, and in lack. How do we know? Because he's working all things to a world where none of those things will exist anymore. And so, even if in the moment it seems like, how far, why am I going through this? You can trust that God's ultimate will is that none of these things will happen ever again. And so I want you to always remember, both in the good and in the seeming bad, that God is good and he's working all things to this end that we just read. He loves his creation. He doesn't delight in the suffering of sinners or believers. He sees how messed up the world is by sin and it hurts him. We read in Genesis multiple times, all through the prophets, it's about God being hurt by the actions of Israel. I, I, I saw a quote while preparing for this teaching. It really blessed me. Or well, I just liked it. Um, it's it's by F. Delitz. <laughs> I will put his name in the chat because I am not German. Um, and he said, The death of his saints is no trifling matter with God. He does not lightly suffer it to come about. He does not suffer his own to be torn away from him by death. That's not God. Psalm 116 verse 15. Psalm 116 verse 15. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. So don't hold a mindset where it's as though God rejoices or God is just sitting back. You will suffer. You, you will see Shege. <laughs> you will go through Shege. No, no, God is not pro Shege. Yes, we might go through Shege following him, but we can trust him. But at the end, at the end, there is something better. Let's quickly go to Psalm 73. I hope we're learning something. I hope we are. Psalm 73. All right. So, um, this, this, uh, I will probably read from the NIV, um, the entire Psalm. <laughs> and I want you to read through and understand what Asaph or Asaph is trying to say. It says, a Psalm of Asaph or Asaph. Surely God is good to Israel. That's that's it, right? To those who are pure in heart. That's the assumption. God, if you're good, God will be good to you. That's the same mindset they brought with Job. Ah, Job, for this bad thing to happen, you are a wicked man. You've done something you're not telling us. And that is why evil has befallen you. And Job is like, no, I'm a good guy. I don't deserve what I'm facing. And God said, it's true. You don't deserve it. <laughs> All right, let's go on. This surely God is good to those who are pure. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. And that's what happens to many people due to an experience in their life or by observing the world. Why do good? One of the biggest um, objections to God is why do bad things happen to good people? Or why do good things happen to bad people? And that's exactly what is it didn't start today a lot of times people think they're the first ones I, I i really one of the things that really really rubs me the wrong way 
I mean, thank God for compassion and understanding. But it's when people raise objections to Christianity as though there have not been thousands of years of people that have been bright intellectuals. You think they didn't think these things through? You say, eh, what about this and this? Oh, I clap for you. One random guy in the heart of Austin has finally discovered an objection that scholars in all their lives have never thought about. It's very presumptuous. Very presumptuous. But anyways, why do bad things happen to good people? Can you answer it? Can you answer it? It's here. <laughs> he said, I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. <laughs> their bodies are healthy and strong. <laughs> it's here. They are free from the burdens common to man. They are not plagued by human ills. Do you notice? Some wicked, they just live long, nothing bad. They are doing well. They are fine. They are getting richer and richer. God bless baby. Mm. <laughs> and they are doing well. It says they are free from the burdens. Come on, to man. If you know, you know. <laughs> it's, it says, and as a result, it says pride is their necklace. They are, they are like nothing can ever happen. It says, they clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts come iniquity and the evil conceits of their minds know no limits. <laughs> I love this. It says, they scoff, they speak with malice in their arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven. Their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? Meaning they are scoffing at God. So this is what the wicked they are like. They are always carefree and they increase in wealth. Many of us can relate to this. It says, surely in vain have, have I kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. And this is a, it's a genuine struggle of, of, a, of a believer, someone who loves God. It's like these people are just, they're just getting away with them. Shame me to, me, can I not do fraud? <laughs> me too, can I not sin? Or let's say you're in college and you see you see people you know they are cheating maybe they are sleeping around and they're just having fun in quotes right it looks like they're enjoying their lives as in do they have two heads ah me too i can ah finesse me too i can finesse me too right and that is the, that is what he's saying and he's like he got to a point where he's like I think I'm wasting my time. He says, surely in vain, I have washed my hands in innocence. All day long, it's now me, me that is following God. I have been plagued. I have been punished every morning. So if I had said I would speak thus, I would have betrayed your children. He says, when I try to understand all of this, verse 16, Psalm 73, verse 16, it was oppressive to me. It didn't make sense. Verse 17, until... I entered the sanctuary of God. I started to see things from an eternal perspective. And what does he say? Then I understood their final destiny. I saw that, yes, for the hundred years they are here, it may look like they are getting it better. But when I looked through the lens of God, when I looked through the lenses of eternity, I said, ah, I pity them. That's what he's saying. It's the same mindset that I've been talking about. From an eternal perspective, things change. The worth of things change. 
He says, surely you've placed them on a slippery ground and you've cast them down to ruin. That just means he has handed them over to themselves because they are reprobate. We'll talk about that in Romans 1. But look at it. says, how suddenly are they destroyed? So on this earth, even if it's 50, 100 years, it might look like, oh, but at the end of the day, they will die and they will face judgment. God will still be good. And so, on the, in the lens of eternity, their death becomes sudden or their destruction is sudden because it's like 100 years compared to what? I don't know. <laughs> it says, how suddenly are they destroyed, swept away by, their ter- by terrors as a dream when one awakes. So when you arise, oh Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. It's the same thing Solomon said that what is life? It is literally smoke. It is here today, gone tomorrow. And if you can start to see reality or, or see your life through the lenses of eternity, you would start to see that it's worth it. I think I said that like two weeks ago. Whatever you have sacrificed to follow Christ in the lens of eternity, when you stand before God, you'll know that it was worth it. And on the contrary, whatever you held on to, whatever you pursued above Christ, when you stand before him, you would know it was a waste of time. It was meaningless and it was short-lived. That's what he's saying. And what, what does he go on in verse 22? Or sorry, um, verse 21. After seeing things through God's perspective, it says, when my heart was grieved and my spirit and bitter, when I was still upset, angry, ah, it says, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet, I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards, you will take me into glory. I love that. That's the, His mind has been renewed. This is James 1. If anyone la- um, lacks wisdom, let him ask. Let him ask. Right? Let him ask. This is the wisdom that comes. It says, who have I in heaven but you? Earth, is, earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all those who are faithful to, unfaithful to you. I'll read that. Yes. Verse 28. But as for me, it is good to be near God. He started by saying, why does it look like these people are getting away with evil? He ended by saying, you know what? Even if in this in this life my flesh says, I will be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge, and I will tell of all your deeds. That is the mindset of someone whose who's, who's perspective has been shaped by eternity. Whether in your own personal suffering or in the in, in the sufferings of the world around you. Amen. Amen. Are we together? Thumbs up. All right, good, good. Let's go on. Habakkuk. Let's go to Habakkuk. So we've done journey through Psalm 73. Why didn't journey through Habakkuk? <laughs> but very quickly, I'm not going to read the whole book of Habakkuk or Habakkuk, whichever one. Um, very simply, what is the book of Habakkuk about? It's similar to Psalm 73. Maybe in your spare time, read it. It's, it, it can't take 30 minutes. Just read through the entire book. Pick up NLT. Just read read through the book of Habakkuk. What is he, is he saying? Let's read verse 2. 
How long, oh God, must I call for help and you don't listen? Or cry out to you, violence, but you do not save. Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. He's not describing Nigeria, even though he could have just switched it. <laughs> He's describing Israel. <laughs> the wicked hem the righteous so that justice is perverted. Right? This is a, another prophet of God. He's looking at Israel and he's like, God, where are you? Why are you allowing all these things happen? It could be your own life. It could be the nations of the world. Why does it look like injustice keeps going on? Again, even in the Bible, Asaph is not the only one. Habakkuk complains as well. Now, what happens is from verses 5, Habakkuk 1. Habakkuk 1, verses 2 to 4. I just read Habakkuk 1, 2 to 4. And <clears throat> well, we're going to work on, on that. But um, I'm reading from the NIV. From the NIV. Habakkuk 1, 2 to 4. So that's, I'm just going to explain the book of Habakkuk pretty much. Just summary. The first thing is, Habakkuk looks at all the evil. He's upset. Rightfully so. Why does it look like evil is prevailing? Now from verse 5 to 11 what god does is he describes that you know what habakkuk just calm down i got this and what he's doing is that he says i would raise up the babylonian um, i said babylonians babylonians eh? babylonians <laughs> the babylonians will come and they will judge israel so for instance, look at verse 5. Look at the nations and watch. Be utterly amazed. I'm about to do something in your days that you will not believe, even if you were told. I am raising up the Babylonians. That ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwelling places that are not their own. So that's what that's God's judgment on Israel. Israel has let me, he handed them over to the Babylonians. The Babylonians will judge them. And it did happen. But look at Habakkuk's second complaint from verse 12. Habakkuk is now like, ah, God, the Babylonians are worse than us. <laughs> yes, I'm complaining, but at least we're not as bad as these guys. How would you use them to now judge us? Like, it's not fair. It's not fair. And that's what he's doing from verse 12 to verse 17. That God... Ah, who will not die. You have appointed them to execute judgment. You have ordained them to punish this. But your eyes are too pure to look on evil. Habakkuk 1 verse 13. You can't tolerate wrong. Why then do you tolerate treacherous people? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous? Habakkuk is like, I don't get it. <laughs> I don't get it. And then in verse 2, he's like, he vexes. <laughs> he says, I will stand. <laughs> I'll watch and I'll see what the Lord will say <laughs> and what answer, right, that I'm to give to this complaint. And then the Lord in Habakkuk 2, that's when he now says, write down the revelation and make it plain. That the revelation awaits an appointed time, it speaks of the end. What was Habakkuk to write down? From verse 6 to verse 20, God promises Habakkuk that don't worry, even the Babylonians, God will judge them. God will judge them. And that's why he starts to say in verse 9, 
Woe to him who builds his realm by unjustly gain to set his nest on high. Verse 12. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a crime, a town by crime. Verse 13. Has not the Lord Almighty determined that the people's labor is only fuel for the fire and that the nations exhaust themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the glory, knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. So God promises Habakkuk, Habakkuk, don't worry. Even Babylon will be judged alongside every other immoral nation and God will be glorified. And then what then happens in Habakkuk 3 verse 1? Again, whenever God interacts with people who have problems with evil, what he responds with is always wisdom. Wisdom. Whether it was Paul, whether it was Job, whether it's Asaph, whether it's Habakkuk, they live there wise. And that is what we need today as believers. Not God, why me? Where were you when my son died? If you're asking that out of genuine pain and concern, God will answer. And you would leave that situation trusting and being more confident in his goodness and wisdom. Right? And that's what Habakkuk does. In verse 3, he prays. He's like, I've heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds. Renew them in our day. Habakkuk 3 verse 2. In our time, make it known. In your wrath, remember mercy. Verse 17. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vine, though the olive crop fails, and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen, and no cattle in the store. What does he say? Yet I will rejoice. Hallelujah. I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me go to the heights. That is what Habakkuk leaves that conversation. That's the book of Habakkuk. That's the summary of the entire book. Wrestling with injustice. God, God reveals his ultimate plan. And he says, you know what? Even if nothing goes on well, I will trust God. Just like Asa, even if my strength fails, I will be near God. The same thing. The same thing. The same thing. Amen. Few more examples. I hope we're not tired. I hope we're, we're following as we're going. Step by step. Thumbs up if, if we're together. All right. Good. Good. Um, John 11. Let's go to John 11. John 11. Thank you, Jesus. This is the story of Lazarus. Very common story. All right. Verse 1. A man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. Verse 3. The sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. Verse 4, he heard this. He said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Now, one would have expected, ah, God, Jesus, sickness is not your will. Abinam. 
You are you do not delight, you are not the giver of sickness, nor do you enjoy watching your children sick. The same Jesus <clears throat> that spoke a word to the centurion's daughter and she was healed where she was. He could have easily said, "Lazarus be healed." From where from Bethany, oh no, just wasn't sorry. Lazarus is in Bethany. I don't know where Jesus was. But he could have easily said, be healed. And Lazarus have just jumped out of bed. I say, wow. Glory to Jesus. He heals. Jehovah. Nisi. Is Nisi's healer now, Abby? <laughs> um, my healer. Right. But what happened? Is that what Jesus did? Jehovah Rapha is healer, Abby. Thank you. I don't know. I'm not all knowing. <laughs> At least I've proven to you all I am a man. <laughs> um, <laughs> where am I? What did Jesus do? He already said it will end in death. What did he do? As per se, stage fright, have you? <laughs> stage fright. Um, he let's read what Jesus, what Jesus did. Verse 6. Yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. I love the fact that John wrote it so that you will know that he heard Lazarus and he chose to stay two more days. Chose to stay two more days. And then in verse 14, he left. By the time he left, Lazarus had already died. So just told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. Think about that. They're like, Jesus, and that's exactly what happened. As soon as Jesus came here, mother, you should have come earlier. If you were here, Lazarus wouldn't have died. And it's true. If he came two days ago, you would have met him sick and he would have healed him. But he waited two days. Literally, think about that. Jesus knew one of his closest friends was sick. He waited two days before going to heal him. Again, of course, God didn't make him sick. Neither was God happy about the sickness, clearly. However, God used the death of Lazarus to teach one of the biggest lessons of his identity and his ministry, which was what? Which was what? John 11, verse 40. Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Verse 25. Of verse 23 to 25. He says, your brother will rise again. He says, oh, I know he will rise in the resurrection at the last day. I know. I know. He says, no, you don't get it. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And so to Jesus, this teaching this statement, I am the resurrection. And to prove that statement true was more important than healing Lazarus at that moment. Which is why he said, God will be glorified from this. Think about that. God saw the evil in the world as an opportunity to teach one of the biggest lessons on salvation, which is what? Eternal life. That if you believe in me, death is merely just a passing phase. It's merely just a passing phase. And what did he do? He rose Lazarus from the dead to show that he had victory 
over death. Again, God using evil for a greater good. Same thing with Israel. <clears throat> Same. My, my throat. All right. Good. Yeah. Same thing with Israel. <laughs> Israel in Exodus 2. I'll start to speed up now because, like I said, there's a lot to cover. But I hope you are here with me. <laughs> we'll have fun. Exodus 2. It says during Exodus 2 verse 23. Exodus 2, 23 to 25. Please take good notes. And like I said... You can always listen to this again. It says, During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. And their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning and remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. <laughs> Was this the first day they had been groaning? They had been groaning for years. For years. But in God's sovereign timing, it was when Moses came on the scene God said, it is time. It is time. <clears throat> it is time. So God was not just like, ah. <laughs> I don't know how many of you watched Prince of Egypt. Deliver us. He said, ah, let them write song. I like the song. Let them sing. No. <laughs> no. Again, just like God did to Job, when you understand God's grand scheme, you can trust him. You can trust him. And again, that is not to say that the situation would always change on this side of eternity. Like Habakkuk said, his solution was not, I know that one day God will change the field. No. He said, even if, even if nothing changes, I would trust God. In my life, I would still trust God. And that's what we see in Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11, very quickly, as I try to round up on this topic. Hebrews 11, 32. <laughs> It says, this was, I mean, Hebrews 11, we know Hebrews 11, the story of the, the heroes of faith, the great cloud of witness were surrounded by. But when the writer of Hebrews starts to describe faith, and I taught this in Journey Through Hebrews, he presents two perspectives so that you would figure out that the point of faith is not a change in the immediate outcome. He tells you about people whose faith changed the immediate outcome. So from the earlier verses, Abraham got a child. Moses was hid. Uh, the walls of Jericho fell. Israel passed through. But <laughs> there were others. Those were highlights. Don't just build your faith journey on the highlights of success. Read the whole story. Read the whole story. What does he say? What more shall I say? It says, I don't have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, the prophets. Through faith, they conquered kingdoms, administered justice. They gained what was promised. They shut the mouth of lions, quenched the flames, escaped the sword. Their weakness was turned to strength. They became powerful in battle. Women received from the dead, raised to life again. Cool stuff. That's, that's the one we want. I want to shut the mouth of lions. I want to turn... People with the edge of the sword. I want weakness turned to strength. I want to receive, raise people back to life. But then he describes another set of people with just, with like faith, right? The same faith, but a different outcome. To let you know that the outcomes were not because one party had faith and another did not. Of course, if you don't have faith, 
there will be a negative outcome. But it doesn't necessarily mean that just because there's a negative outcome meant that you didn't have faith. Does that make sense? Right? So he says what? Others were tortured and they refused to be released so that they may gain a better resurrection. He says, no, kill me. The one God has for me, you can't, you can't, you can't buy it. You can't give me. He says, some faced jeers and flogging. Others chained and put in prison. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were put to death by the sword. Since they went about in sheepskin and goat skins, <laughs> it's not a uh, Gucci. <laughs> it's a authentic leather. <laughs> no, that's that's where the real leather started from. Says they were destitute, they were persecuted, they were mistreated. And I love the Hebrews eleven thirty is one of the best verses in my in, in my Bible. It says the world was not worthy of them. I love that. The world was not worthy of them. It says they wandered in deserts and mountains, in caves, in holes in the ground. You see that? The same book, the same hall of fame. When you think of people who had faith, you think of hey, Moses, Daniel, <laughs> Joshua. Oh my God. But we don't oftentimes think about the ones who died saying they will not deny their faith. As in, like Bolu said, they too had struggles that they overcame, but at least in their own lifetime, they saw victory upon victory upon victory. We don't think of the, the, the woman whose husband, child, everyone were killed and none of them were raised back to life because she said she was not going to deny Jesus. We don't think of the people who lost everything they had and they did not get it back. <laughs> they did not get it back. They did not get it back. We don't think of that as stories of faith. If it was today, say, ah, God, where are you? Was my faith in vain? But I'm sure we've learned to, to talk better than that. It says, now I love verse 10. It says, these were all. Both the ones that saw victory in this life, the ones that didn't. They were all commended. Yet, none of them. So, even the Daniel, the Joshua, the David, none of them received what had been promised. So, at the end of the day, every single one of them, the hallmark of their faith was that they died without even receiving it at the end. But they still died trusting God. That God was going to be faithful. Why? eternity 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 once you start to look at life through the lenses of eternity god is always good always good it is none of them not one not one character in the old testament died receiving what god had promised not one and yet they all judged god faithful it says god had planned something better so that only together with us would they be made perfect? Amen. Amen. All right, good. We're together. The same thing, even in judgment, when God is judging wicked people, we see his wisdom, we see his patience. Genesis 15, 
Genesis 15 verse 14. So Jesus, sorry, I said Jesus. God talking to Abraham. He says, I will punish the name. He was talking about the Amorites, right? Where, I'm um, sorry, in 14, he was talking about the Egyptians. The Egyptians. Verse 13, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country that's not their own. They will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. It's God that said it. <laughs> says, but I'll punish the nation where they serve as slaves. And afterwards, they would come out with great possessions. Verse 16, it says, in the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here. For the sin of the Amorites has not reached its full measure. And so we see God being patient with wicked people because it's not time. He still says, let them change. Let me give them time. Genesis 6 verse 3, the same thing. It says, my spirit will not contend with man forever. He is mortal. His days will be 120 years. Most, it's still, the interpretation of that verse is debatable. But most theologians will tell you that this meant from that point, humanity had 120 years left to live. Not that it will grow than that at 120, but that the flood will clear everything in 120 years. And whichever one you've, that's fine. But what we do know is that it took years for Noah to build the ark. The world was still getting more and more evil. And as Noah was building, he was preaching the gospel. Come on, there will be rain. You never see this one coming. You better come. It says in 2 Peter 2 verse 5, it says, God did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but he protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness and seven others. Noah was preaching for 120 years. Change. No, nobody. Nobody. But God was patient. And I want you to think about that. In your thinking, why, do, why does God allow evil people or evil things go on? If God stepped in to judge evil every time it appeared, no one would be saved. No one would be saved. If he stepped in every time an unbeliever wanted to persecute you, no one will be saved. If he stopped, stepped in every time to, to, to halt the evil actions of others, it would affect free will. It's like, no, you, you, and that's not, that's, that's not God's biggest. God's plan is the salvation of all. Even the unbeliever, even that persecutor. Imagine if everyone who stoned Stephen died by fire. <laughs> Imagine. Paul, would have been roasted in the judgment of God. No journey through the epistles because would have finished since last year. Is it Peter? How long did we, would we spend? Peter, Jude, <laughs> James. Maybe maybe the writer of Hebrews. I doubt it. And maybe Revelation. And that's the end. We'll call it a day. Just because someone said, everyone that stands against me died by fire. And God answered that prayer. So we see that God's and that's exactly what Peter says is salvation. 2 Peter 3 verse 9. 2 Peter 3 verse 9. says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some of you understand slowness. He's patient. He doesn't want anyone to perish but everyone to come to repentance. One of the reasons why evil still goes on is because God wants those perpetrators to be saved. Verse 15, verse 15, 2 Peter 3, 15. Consider that the long-suffering of our Lord 
is salvation. Is salvation. Is salvation. Is salvation. God is patient because he, he, he wants to see people saved. And many of us here can testify to the patience of God. We can testify to the patience of God. If God was not patient with you. <laughs> so allow him to be patient with others. Even those that persecute you. And that's the mindset of the Christian. That as believers, we just keep praying. We just keep trusting. But ultimately, we desire the wisdom to trust God. The wisdom to navigate life on his own terms. On his own plans and purposes. That's where Job got to. That's the point Job got to. That's the point Habakkuk got to. That's the point Asaph got to. That's the point that Paul got to. And so we can hold the goodness of God and hold his sovereignty and wisdom in bad times without falling into either extremes. Amen. I hope that makes sense. We're done with this topic. Thumbs up if it makes sense. All right. Good, 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 good. I'm glad we understand. <laughs> so please run away from extremes. All right. Topic number two. Heaven. <laughs> I told you I have a lot to share today. I hope it's worth your time so far. That's good. That's good. <laughs> Let me drink water. All right. So, the question that comes to mind when we think of heaven, let me start by asking, what exactly is heaven? Or do you want to, re- do you guys want to rest? I should just go on. <laughs> let's, let's take like two minutes. <laughs> let's take like two minutes. Don't worry, don't worry, Romans, we'll take breaks. I think we'll have to take breaks. Um, we should go, Abby. Let's move on. Fire on. Okay. I love that. I love that. <laughs> um, where am I? I'm not the one blanking out. Yes, heaven. Yeah, so, all right. Like I said, if there's anything that you can always listen again, you can always ask me personally. What is heaven? What comes to your mind when you think about heaven? Do you think blue skies, the floor is sky, gates, staircase, angels at the reception desk? Hi, may I help you? (laughs) What do you think about when you think of heaven? Is it a place? Is it where God lives? So God's address, number one. Uh, uh, Gold as glass streets. (laughs) Trinity Avenue. Heaven. Zip code 77777. (laughs) What is heaven? And by the end of... (laughs) By the end of this teaching, I think... A lot of things will start to connect. Like I said, even like Revelations 21, it will make more sense. Um, good. I like that. I think of a place with God's throne. Someone said, being in Christ is being in heaven. Word man or word woman. <laughs> a time of no pain, no tears. Good. Good. 
a place filled with awe. I like what you said, a place. That's what we're going to talk about. The 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 one thing that I don't know, I don't yeah, I think it I would say it saddens me. Seraphims and cherubims. <laughs> it saddens me, but it's funny how some of the most important aspects of our Christianity have been left to myth. Like we can't theologically defend <laughs> what we think, it's what we heard. For instance, stuff like, oh, before you were born, you were singing praises with God in heaven. Where did you learn that? Did you see it in the Bible? That before babies are born, their souls are in heaven. (laughs) Anyways, but I'm saying all that to say, every aspect of your Christianity, examine it critically. Like, you should be able to defend it well. That this is what I believe about this and this is why. This is why. Or for instance, oh, when Satan, Satan rebelled and he took one third of the angels. He was a, he was a choir master in heaven. <laughs> Where did you see that? <laughs> he used to sing. His, his voice was a generous. And like all choir masters, he said, I can be the pastor of the church. <laughs> and he convinced a third of the church to leave him and start his own church. Where did you see that? Where did you learn that from? It's in the Bible, delights. Me and you will do Bible study after this. You will prove it to me. <laughs> I know what you're thinking about. Unfortunately, we're not going to go there today. That's not my topic for today. <laughs> but um, my point is just, as children, it's easy to pick things up, right? We just pick up what we heard. But the older you get, and I'm not even saying anything I've said so far is wrong or right. I'm just saying, if I ask many of you, many of you know what I'm saying. But you don't, you can't tell me when the Bible it is. That's just my point. I'm not even examining it if it's true or false. I'm just saying you know it because you heard it said over and over and over again. Over and over and over again. But you can't defend that position. That's not good. That's not good. Anything you believe, whether it's about heaven, whether it's about hell, maybe one day I'll teach on hell. <laughs> whether it's about rapture, as we so call it. Whether it's about eternity, read yourself of all the movies, read yourself of all the fables you heard, study the Bible. What does it actually say? What does it actually say? And that's what we're going to do today. So, what is heaven? And of course, there's no way I can do anything exhaustive. I just want to give you guys things to think about moving on. When next you read heaven in your Bible, what should come to your mind? What should come to your mind? I think the first problem we have when we think about heaven is that we forget that we are talking about something spiritual. Heaven is a spiritual concept. <laughs> I can reach out to left behind. Left behind that movie. Oh my goodness, God. <laughs> it's a spiritual concept. And one thing we should not do which goes without saying is think about things of the spirit the same way we think about things that are physical right i I think we can all agree on that i think we can all agree on that we shouldn't think about it that way this and that 
yes, the Bible uses analogies, representations, but we should never forget that that is what they are. They are analogies and representations. Gold is physical. It is not spiritual. Glass is physical. It is not spiritual. (laughs) And so what these physical representations do, they help us understand things that we can't necessarily use words for. So they present concepts that you are already familiar with to help you understand a concept that you are not. Is heaven a physical location? Of course not. I think wherever, whatever you believe about heaven, we can all agree. Heaven is not a physical place. But if heaven is not a physical location, should we expect it to be located in a physical space? Not necessarily. What do I mean by that? Is heaven up? (laughs) Is it above the skies? Of course not. It's spiritual. Literally, Genesis 11 verse 4. (laughs) Genesis 11 verse 4. It says, let us come and build ourselves a city, a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the earth. The the Hebrew word heaven is the word shamayim. S-H-A-M-A-Y-I-N. Shamayim, whichever one. And it literally just means the sky. It means the sky. But then again, in the eyes of the authors, talking about representation, right? There was the idea that S-H-A-M-A-Y-I-M, Shamayim, S-H-A-M-A-Y-I-M. And it was a representation of the idea that the gods were above us, right? If you die, you go below. But the gods are above us. That's why we go, lower Satan, lower hey, Satan, higher Jesus. <laughs> I don't know. You're pushing, pushing him. <laughs> go up, go up, go up, go to him. Right? But as human beings, there is something about elevation that denotes rank or superiority. So for instance, when someone is talking to you from a podium, it's like an elevated rank. Or if you have to climb somewhere to, like, if you have to go up to see something, it talks about elevation and superiority. And that's why all through the Bible, temples were always located on high places. You would see God meeting with Moses on the top of a mountain. You would see the, the temples, Eden, on the top of a mountain. Ezekiel 20, it talks about the garden being on a mountain, right? On a mountain. It's the same idea for garden. So again, the Hebrew authors and their neighbor, they were in deserts. You can still look at the Middle East. It's a desert arid land. And so whenever there were gardens or where water started to be associated with life, of course, if you live in a desert, water is life, <laughs> right? Or if you see a garden, that's like, oh, the gift of the gods. And that's why Eden was described as a garden on a mountain, as a garden on a mountain. So there was that idea that physical representation Things that are higher up represented heavenly spaces. So, of course, above the skies will be where the gods lived. In the Greek is the word Uranus, right? Where we actually probably, not probably, where the planet Uranus comes from. The the Greek word O-U-R, 
A-N-O-S. O-U-R-A-N-O-S. And it also means the sky. Literally, the sky <laughs> that you see. So is God really above the sky? If you've flown a plane before, or you have been on a rocket, maybe you have none of us here, but if you have been on a rocket, you will know that God is not above the sky. <laughs> we know what is above. At least now we do. They didn't. We do. It's the same way in the Bible they talk about things like opening the windows of heaven. What does that phrase mean? It just meant that there was, it says in the seventh heaven, <laughs> even that, ah, anyways. Um, what was I saying? Uh, lost my train of thought. Yes. Um, there was the idea that water was stored up in the sky, right? That literally there was a dome. And you see that in Genesis, that there's like a dome where there's water above. And if that dome should break at any time, kind of like a glass house, water, water comes in. And so what happens, how they describe the flood is that the dome collapsed in on itself and water just broke through and flooded everything. It's the same thing when they say, oh, God opened the windows. That's why they're considered as windows of heaven because they believe that there's water stored up there. Whenever the windows are open, rain falls. I remember as a kid, we used to joke that uh, what rain is, is that God was, or the angels were washing clothes and they are, they are pouring the water that they used to wash their clothes, they are pouring it away. And so it's falling to the earth as rain. It's the same mindset. That's why they say, oh, rain is stored up. The God will open up the windows of heaven. We know that that's not the case. Yes, clouds are made up of water, but we know about the water cycle. We know about the water cycle. In fact, due to the shape of the earth, common sense will tell you that no, like at no point is there an up because Australia people, they are saying their own up is where God is. But you in uh, Europe, you're also pointing up. Your up is different too. <laughs> When you look at space, your up is very different. So which one? Is it Australia's up or Europe's up that God is living in? These were just representations. Representations to how far above, how far above man that God was. And that's the first thing you should always know or note about heaven. That its geographical description pointed to a theological fact. That God is above man. That's what it was. So you see that heaven is your throne. The earth is your footstool. God is above man. You sit in the heavens. It's describing God's superiority. God's superiority. God's superiority. The second thing to then note about heaven is that it was used in two major contexts in the Bible. It was used in two major contexts in the Bible. The first one refers to things that are spiritual in nature. I'm going to, we're going to go through a couple verses now. Heaven simply described things that were spiritual in nature. Let's go to John 3 verse 12. John 3 verse 12. It says, if I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how would you believe if I tell you heavenly things? What are those heavenly things? Is it things above the sky? No. Things pertaining to the spirits. It says, no one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the son of man who is in heaven. 
We're going to get there. I'm, I'm not going to rush. But how is the Son of Man in heaven? What does it mean that he came down from heaven? It means he stepped out of that spiritual elevated plane to come into our physical plane. We will get there. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 40. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 40. Thank you, Lord. It says, There are celestial bodies. Celestial bodies. In the Greek, is the word what? Epiranus. Heavenly bodies. And there are terrestrial bodies. Where am I? Verse 40. Yes. It says in the in the NKJV, they are sorry, in the NIV, there are heavenly bodies, there are earthly bodies. The splendor of the heavenly body is one kind. The splendor of the earthly body is one kind. And he starts to talk about even just the stars. And then he now starts to talk about the body of the resurrection. That there is a physical body and there is what? A spiritual body. In Ephesians 3 verse 10. Now this is now a different context. So the first context is what? Things that are spiritual. Sorry. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 40. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 40 we can read many more verses but i'll give it to you as a homework what you should do is look for everywhere that word heaven comes up in the old testament look for everywhere it comes up in the new testament just read through it you it's very clear it's very clear so for instance hebrews 3 verse 1 it's, it says what brethren partakers of the heavenly calling what is the heavenly calling it's the spiritual call we've gotten in Christ. Hebrews 6 verse 4. Those who have tasted of the heavenly gifts. What was that gift? Salvation. You received the spirit of God. That's the heavenly gift. Hebrews 12 22. We've come to a heavenly Jerusalem. It's not the Jerusalem on earth that's in Israel today. It's the spiritual Jerusalem. It's the spiritual Jerusalem. 2 Timothy 4 verse 18. 2 Timothy 4 verse 18. God will preserve me to his heavenly kingdom. It's not a physical kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom. Amen. Luke 17 verse 21. So I'll read the verses again. Hebrews 12 22. Hebrews 6 verse 4. Hebrews 3 verse 1. 2 Timothy 4 18. Now we're in Luke 17 21. Thank you, Ayo. Luke 17 21. It says, and that's what just speaking about the heavenly kingdom. It says from verse 20. Once having been asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God will come, they were thinking of something physical. Something that, oh, Israel will become the most powerful nation in the world. The Romans, once and for all. Jesus said, the kingdom of God does not come with your careful observation. It's not something that you can physically track that, oh, Israel is now the most powerful nation in the world. Verse 21 says, not will people say, here it is. There it is. It's not physical. That's what he's saying. Because the kingdom of God is within you. It is God in the hearts of man. It's spiritual. That's the kingdom of God. Righteousness. 
Peace. In the early coast, it's spiritual. So, the first context of heaven that you should note is that it refers to things that are spiritual in nature. Now, I'm sure you should be having questions. It's not only God and his angels that are spiritual in nature. The devil is spiritual in nature. Let's go to Ephesians 3 verse 1. So Ephesians 1 verse 3. And then Ephesians. It says, Ephesians 1 verse 3. Blessed be God and Father of our Lord who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. God has blessed us in heavenly places what does that mean what does that mean what does that mean let's look at ephesians 3 verse 10 it says ephesians 3 verse 10 to the intent so paul is describing god's plans and purposes in christ what was it it says that now the manifold wisdom of god might be made known by the church, meaning as the church, what God has done in the church. And I explained this, listen to Journey Through Ephesians. I talked about this at length. Cool stuff. What God has done through Christ for the church. As the church goes about preaching the gospel, and I'm going to get there. It says what? We are showing the wisdom of God to principalities and powers. Where are those principalities and powers? If you're with your Bible. Where are they? Where are the principalities and powers? It's not a trick question. It's right there. In heavenly places. Awesome. In heavenly places. So, the prince of Persia is where? <laughs> where is he? In hell, Abby. Uh-huh. I like it. Say it with your, say it with your full chest. Is <laughs> where? <laughs> Where are the princes and princip- the princes and principalities of this world? In heavenly places. The same place where, where Christ is. <laughs> Some of you, are, don't worry, we'll, we'll, we'll get there. Don't be confused. But it's clear. It's, I'll say heavenly places, not heaven. Check the Greek, it's the same. <laughs> In heavenly places. In heavenly places. But what does that mean? And I'm going to still get to the second context. So that for those of you that are like, ah, are you saying, are you saying, don't worry. <laughs> what does heavenly, like I said, check the Greek. First of all, places is always italicized. So it wasn't even in the original. <laughs> and it's the same, it's in heaven. <laughs> they are in heaven. They are in heaven. But this is still the first context, right? Just be patient with me. The first context refers to things that are spiritual in nature or the spiritual plane. Anything that exists in the spirit exists in heaven. all right ephesians 6 verse 12 just in case you were not convinced the first time ephesians 6 verse 12 for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against principalities before you say ah no maybe the principalities and powers were good you know there's also good principalities (laughs) it says they are the ones the one you are wrestling against (laughs) principalities powers 
rulers of darkness of this age, spiritual hosts of wickedness. <laughs> Where are they also? <laughs> Where are they? They are in heaven. <laughs> they are in heaven. They are in heaven. Again, I'm only here to show you what the Bible says. <laughs> They're in heaven. <laughs> All right. So that is the first context. All right. That it is the spiritual plane of existence. However, for those of you that want to hold on to all you've learned all your life, don't worry, there's hope for you. Heaven is also used to refer to that place, that spiritual plane of existence of beings that are submitted to God. So there's that idea as well. When they say, oh, we'll go to heaven or that kind of, it, it refers to, there's kind of a, a demarcation, right? Referring to beings that are submitted to the Lordship of God. Willingly at this point. So we're still going to, yeah, that's the second context. So it's kind of like a subsection in quotes. Kind of like a subsection. The first refers generally to 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 all spiritual exam which is the more accurate one but then figuratively it's also then used to describe a domain where it's surrounded by spiritual beings that are submitted to god and that's now where we think of the heaven we usually think of but again more accurately it's just the spiritual plane why we're going to get to why we're going to get to why. I'm excited. Well, we're going to get to why. So, for instance, where you see things like God is going to gather in Ephesians 1.10, gather all in Christ, things that are on heaven, in heaven and on earth. Why is it just those two? It's because it's referring to things that are physical and things that are spiritual. God is going to bring everything under Christ. Going to bring everything under Christ. When he talks about the whole family in heaven and on earth, your spiritual family, including the angels and gone saints, and your physical family on earth. When it says our citizenship is in heaven, that one I'll get there. Let me not even, let me not rush. But I hope that makes sense. The first, like heaven, conceptually, and like I said, please do this assignment for me. I beg you. Because what I could have done today, if I really, really meant you all, will be we'll go through verse after verse after verse, and we'll see that it's still the same thing. It refers to the spiritual plane of existence. But I want you to do that for yourself. I want you to do because we still have quite some things I want to touch on before I end. Right? Study that, and you would see that heaven simply refers to things that are spiritual. Or a realm of the realm of the spirit, right? I hope that's clear. So that's what it's that's what it is biblically. And what operates in heaven? God, the host of heaven, angels, but also spirits and demonic spirits, princes and principalities, the devil, they all operate in heaven or in heavenly places, so that it'd be easier for some of you to swallow in heavenly places and like i said there is a nuanced distinction that all the spirits yielded to god and all the 24 elders and all those ones 
there's a description as though, okay, that's heaven. We do see that. But again, broadly speaking, even the operations of the devil is yielded to God. I've, I've made that very clear, haven't I? And so God is still ruler of heaven and earth, including the princes and powers and principalities. Whether it's negative spiritual, positive spiritual, they are still submitted to God in heaven. In heaven. So now let's do a bit of word study. The first word, we're going to study two words. The first word I want us to study is the word Elohim. When you hear Elohim, what comes to your mind? What comes to your mind? Tell him I don't know. <laughs> a name of God. Yes, many times we think of God, God's name as Elohim. You're not necessarily wrong. But the word Elohim, it's actually Elohim in, in the Hebrew. It's just that there's a Y. It's E-L-O-H-I-Y-M. And it literally just means God. Yes, many times it then refers to the supreme God. But it's gods in general, like mighty beings, mighty spiritual beings. So, for instance, in Psalm 82, verse 1, Bible Project, Avi, <laughs> Psalm 82, verse 1. Oh, bless those, that, that, that ministry. Where will I be if not for them? It says, God stands, is the word Elohim, stands in the congregation of the mighty. He judges amongst the gods. It's amongst the Elohims. God, the Elohim stands and judges amongst the Elohims. Psalm 82 verse 8. Psalm 86 verse 8, sorry. Psalm 86 verse 8. Psalm 86 verse 8. Among the gods. So, among the gods, among the Elohims, there is none like unto thee, O Lord, O Adonai, neither like unto thy works. Psalm 95 verse 3. Psalm 95 verse 3. For the Lord, that's for Jehovah, is a great God. Is a great L. That's just God. It's shortened. A great king above all gods, above all Elohim. I'm liking how it's starting to make sense. <laughs> there are multiple Elohim. Exactly. That's the point. Psalm 96. Like I said, I'll just say what the Bible says and it will be very clear. <laughs> Psalm 96 verse 4. For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods, all Elohim. For all the Elohim of the nations, verse 5, are idols, good for nothing, vain. But the Lord, Jehovah, made the heavens. Final Psalm, Psalm 136, verse 2. There are multiple. Again, write it in your notes. Word study on Elohim. Just check it. It's, it's very clear. It's very clear. Which is why I said everything you hold true. Let the Bible inform you. Thank God for resources. You can check these things out yourself. Psalm 136 verse 2. I like this one. Oh, give thanks unto the God of gods. Unto the Elohim of Elohim. For his mercy. 
endures forever. When he says, since the word God is used, why are they still Elohim? We'll get there. We'll get there. So, and well, it's actually simple. It's just, it's, it's, it's rank. The idea there is that God, the Elohim, created other spiritual beings. I mean, it's pretty clear there's hierarchy in heaven. We see it in Daniel, the chief archangel. We see it in Jude and stuff like that. And we see it in the negative supernatural as well, that even after rebelling against God, there is still hierarchy. And so there are spiritual beings that are different in rank and in authority, whether positive or negative. Who created them? God. What are they called? Elohims. <laughs> I believe it's clear. Now, someone, so for instance, 1 Corinthians 10. I'm still on the Elohim topic. Don't worry, I'm not done. 1 Corinthians 10, 19 to 20. And this was teaching about idols, right? We, we've gone through 1 Corinthians, so this should be fresh in your mind. The idea where it says, what do I say then? Is an idol a thing? Or what is offered to a sacrifice in an idol in things? Is it? No, 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 no. An idol is dead. It says, but I see. The things that the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to devils and not to gods. They sacrifice to spiritual beings that are trying to take man away from God. We see that in throughout the Old Testament. Do not worship the gods of your neighboring countries, the Elohims of your neighboring countries. I and I alone shall you serve. So there's an idea in which an idol in itself is nothing. But the spiritual influence, the worship and the lifestyle of that idol is directed by demonic spirits, princes and principalities that are trying to draw the heart of man from God. So the idea of the whole Elohim thing is that in the, high, in the eyes of a Hebrew, hmm, that's a very hard thing for Yoruba man to say, in the eyes of a Hebrew author, <laughs> God is the true God. <laughs> God is the Elohim. Yes, he created other spiritual beings, which are where? In heaven. But he is the true God. And whether or not they are on his side or not, he still rules over the heavens. So when you say God rules over the heaven, it just means he is the chief spiritual being over every spiritual being that exists, demonic or not, God is chief. He's the only one that is uncreated. He's the only one that created everything else. He's the Elohim. Thumbs up if that makes sense. Okay. 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 Any, if, if you're not clear on anything, you can put it in the chat. Now put it in the chat. It says, why not just destroy all those spirits already? We'll end with that's where we're going to end. Because I'm not saying all these things just for you to have new words in your mind. And there's an application for you as a believer. The second word study we're doing today, sons of God. So write that down. Sons of God. What does it mean to be a son of God? <laughs> as usual, you're going to, you already know where I'm going with this. If as same way heaven, Elohim, you know where I'm going with this. Let's start with sons of men. What does it mean to be a son of man? Genesis 6 verse 2. Genesis 6 verse 2. 
says the Elohim part where other gods share the name or attributes of God isn't clear. So, no. At no point have I said that they have the name of God. I simply said that the word Elohim simply means to a spiritual being. God is a spiritual being. The devil is a spiritual being. It doesn't mean they shared the same attributes. And that's why all the verses I read, it was to show that God is king over them all. God has authority over them all. I'm not saying they are the same. (laughs) I'm not saying they are the same. I'm simply saying divine or spiritual beings that exercise authority over humanity are described as Elohim. It's a language. It's it's just a word. It's not a theological term is what I'm trying to say. And so, Shongo is an Elohim because he's a God. Right? Small g. Yemoja is an Elohim. <laughs> She's a God. Small g. We know biblically that at the end of it, it's demons. Right? They are demons. They are demons. But they are spiritual beings that people have gathered together to worship as gods. And because of that influence, I've swayed the hearts of man away from the true Elohim, the true God. No other place is a God called Adonai, Lord, or Jehovah, right? But Elohim just refers to a descriptive title of a supernatural being. That's what I'm trying to say. So I'm not saying that just because they are all described as Elohims in the Bible means they have the same name. Or they have the same attributes. But they do still share one fundamental attribute, which is what? They are all spiritual, which is why they exist in heaven. That's my point. Does that make sense? They are all spiritual beings. You can't see them. They are in heaven. (laughs) They are in heavenly places, if that helps. Does that make sense? All right, good. Um, Yes, so sons of God, sons of men. Genesis 6 verse 2. The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were fair. So it's not just, it's not today that they've been iron fine women. <laughs> so they looked at women and said, ah, these people are fine. And it says they took them, wives of which they chose. Who are the daughters of men? Female humans. Who are the sons of God? We'll get there. Ecclesiastes is a spirit husband. <laughs> Don't think too much about this verse. That's a whole different conversation. Honestly, there's there's so much to teach, but there's no time. Like, this is well. Ecclesiastes, well, let's just try, let's just try to stay to what we're teaching today. We're not doing um Genesis 6. We're not doing that today. Ecclesiastes 113. It says, I gave my heart to seek and search out by wisdom. Okay, let me switch to an easier translation. No, it will take away that phrase. I gave my heart, Ecclesiastes 1.13, to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all that was done under heaven, the sore travail that God has given to the sons of men to be exercised therewith. What is sons of men? Sons of men. Ephesians 3 verse 5. Ephesians 3 verse 5. Which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men. But now is revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. What does it mean to be a son of man? Put it in the chat. <laughs> Let me see. What does it mean to be a son of man? Exactly. <laughs> That's it. It just means to be human. <laughs> it simply means 
to be human. Daniel 5.21. This was when Nebuchadnezzar said, it's me that did everything. It says he, he was driven from the sons of men. He was driven from human civilization. It's an angel. No. To be a son of man just means you are human. That's all. That's all. It's a, it's a description of nature. Nature. It shows that you are human. And ah, you have copied my notes. <laughs> Yanu, well done. Gold star for you. And that is exactly why Jesus always emphasized himself as the son of man. To show that he was human. He was emphasizing the incarnation. That I have become human. I have become human. John 1, 14. John 1, 14. The word was made flesh, dwelt amongst us. The son of God became a son of man. Matthew 11, verse 19. Matthew 11, verse 19. The son of man came eating and drinking. The son of man. Matthew 12, verse 32. Matthew 12, verse 32. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven. He described himself to show that he had become human. We'll still get to Son of God. Don't worry. It's about to get even more exciting. Mark 2, verse 28. Therefore, the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. Mark 2, 28. Psalm 8, verse 4. Psalm 8, verse 4. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? That's what's humanity that you even care about us. I mean, I feel that more and more every person. I'm like, God, why do you... We are, we are useless creatures. <laughs> we are not serious people, all of us. But God cares. So now, we get to Daniel 7. Daniel 7. Where's my Bible? <laughs> Daniel 7 verse 13. Turn your Bibles there. I want you to be there. I want you to read it together. Daniel 7 verse 13. Make sure you're there. This is Daniel's vision. It says, I saw in the night visions one like the son of man. What does that mean? I saw a human. Ah, I saw someone that this guy is a human being. But he came with the clouds of heaven. Of course, in, their, in, 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 in ancient Near East mythology, who rides the clouds of heaven? Baal. Who rides the clouds of heaven? Yahweh. Or Baal, whichever one. Yahweh. God rides the clouds of heaven. It's talking about spiritual authority. Elevation. Remember what I talked about about heaven? Elevation far above humanity. But now, I'm seeing a human Riding the how is a human being able to ride the clouds of heaven? He says he came to the ancient of days, that's God, the Elohim, and they brought him near before him, and there was given him dominion, glory, kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is everlasting, it will not pass away, and his kingdom will not be destroyed. So now Daniel is seeing a human being elevated to the highest spiritual point. Of course, you remember Philippians. Oh, yes, of course. We're going to go there. It's Philippians. It's literally Philippians. Um, 
elevated to the highest spiritual point and everything is given to him. How is that possible? How is a man able to ride the clouds of heaven? We'll get there. Is it like Superman? <laughs> so now, what does it then mean to be a son of God? What does it mean to be a son of God? If son of man is a description of nature, human, what does it mean to be a son of God? Before we even go into the verses, I want to hear, what does it mean? What does it mean? Hmm. You people are thinking we in Christ's realities. <laughs> if son of man is human, son of God is spiritual. Again, Genesis 6 verse 2, the sons of God. Those are people that share the same nature. Not a man. Not a man yet. That's why what Jesus did is a big deal. You guys already, you have jumped. But before Jesus came, there's a reason this thing was a big deal. And it's because they understood these things I'm sharing. Exactly. It's only in salvation we become sons of God. And now I said, it's a big deal to everyone. He gave them power to be so. It's John said, we've been made sons of, like, ah, it's a big deal. But we'll get there. That's much later in my notes. Let's stick to sons of God. When it says the sons of God saw the daughters, it's not believers. It's just referring to spiritual beings. Spiritual beings, they share in the spiritual nature of God. Job 1 verse 6. Now we're getting to Job. The reason this topic existed in the first place. says, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves to the Lord. The sons of God. Job 38 verse 7. Job 38 verse 7. When... It says, uh, this God answering Job, were you there when I laid the foundations? When, Ibuko, I'll get to your question. When the, when the morning stars sang together and the sons of God shouted for joy. God is talking about when he was creating the world. And he says, these spiritual beings were excited. They were excited to see God bring a physical reality into being. So the idea son of, son of, is the same way you say the son of a goat is a goat, right? It, it refers to nature. Sons of ma- son of man means that by nature I'm human. Son of God means that by nature I'm spiritual. I'm spiritual. I'm spiritual. Question, is Satan a son of God? <laughs> Yes, I mean, you can't say ha, ah, but it's true. <laughs> Satan is a son of God. Exactly. Now it starts by definition, by nature, he is. <laughs> it said away. <laughs> I thought it, I so what I told my I told my sister, I said that after this, I'm going to teach. I just summarized, I said, I'm going to teach these people that Satan is the son of God and he lives in heaven. <laughs> you see? They would chase you. <laughs> you are now a heretic. <laughs> See, this is a lot. And it's... Huh? No, God is capital G. So they are, they are sons of God, meaning that they are spiritual beings that God created. That God created. Don't think too much about it. It's just that they are spiritual beings 
that God created. That's what it means to be. They are spiritual beings that God created. Is Satan a spiritual being that God created? Yes. <laughs> yes. He's a spiritual being that God created. By definition, is he a son of God? Or by nature? Yes. We're still going to talk about the rebellion and all of that. But let's even stick to... Let's take it one at a time. Because you have to understand all of this to understand what Jesus is doing through the church. There's a reason he said all authority in heaven and on earth. There's a reason why after he sent them out, he said, I saw Satan fall like light. We'll get there. There's a reason. It starts from this. Satan is a spiritual being. See, I should have told that. This is how I should have. I don't worry, I just wanted to shock you guys. I need to shake all the all your theological assumptions. We'll shake it. We'll shake it. Shake it. He's a spiritual being that God created. That's what Genesis 6 refers to. The spiritual beings that God created saw that the humans were attractive. Simple. Son of God, son of man is nature. Physical, spiritual. That's all. That's all. That's all. And so, of course, we know... Please, don't quote me and say that Satan is, Daniel says Satan is the son of God. If you've not done all of this, they would, <laughs> I beg you in the name of God, don't put me in trouble. Say, so what do I learn? What did you learn from JTT today? I learned that Satan is a son of God that lives in heaven. Say, ah. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yes, please listen again. I told you there was a lot. There is a lot. We'll soon be done actually. Wow. We've gotten past, now that I've explained this one, we've gotten past, past the major hurdles. But, like we said, we know that some of these spirit beings chose not to submit to God. We know that from scripture. We know that the devil has chosen to rebel. We know that demons followed the devil and chose to rebel. But question, are they still spirit beings? Yes. Are there still ranks and authorities and powers? Yes. Do they dwell in the heavenly places? Yes. Are they sons of God? By definition, yes. <laughs> so what is the question now is, God is faced with a big problem. Number one, the sons of God have rebelled. Number two, they are influencing the sons of man or the sons of men to also join them in their rebellion. That's what is going on. It didn't start with Adam. It started with the devil. The sons of God have rebelled. Now they are influencing sons of men to rebel through idol worship, through influence, through disobedience. God's entire creation in heaven and earth is being corrupted. Can you remember Revelation 21? I will make a new heaven. That's why. A new heaven and a new earth. Because, because both the spiritual and the physical, there's rebellion everywhere. That is what God is working towards. That's what God is working towards. Is it making sense? Let's go on. So, um... When you read, okay, I, I got a question. I'm going to touch it. That what are the different the different levels of heaven? 
explained by Paul the Apostle. I'll, I'll get there. Um, but um, I lost my train of thought. So, for instance, when you get back to Job 1, Job 1, verse 6, in the eyes of a Jewish author or a narrator, it's not, there's nothing surprising when you say there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves and Satan was also among them. He's meant to be in the meeting. <laughs> Do you get it? It's not as if he's snuck in. <laughs> All the spiritual beings were assembled and Satan was there. Does that make sense? And so God is like, Oga, Alpha, what do you have to say? Why? Because he is a spiritual being created by God. He's a spiritual being created by God. <laughs> so let's go to Daniel 3, verse 5. I'm 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 still I'm going to answer that question about heaven. Don't worry going to get there but daniel 3 verse 5 daniel 3 verse 5 oh sorry daniel 3 verse 25 when they put them in in the fire it says i didn't say they all meet i didn't say that job is we're still going to get to what happened in job but job is simply a description yes um that's thank you (laughs) You have introduced us to an interesting topic. But Daniel 3.25, it says, He answered and said, I see four men loose, walking in the midst of the fire. They have no hurt. And the fourth of the, the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. What was he saying? The fourth one looks like his spirit. It's not the, I know there are three humans here, but the fourth one, we're talking about nature. What is is his spirit? <laughs> right? And that's why, yes, it wasn't, of course, we know you can call just the fourth man in the fire, but the description, what they saw, they didn't know Jesus now. They saw a spirit being. They saw a spirit being in the fire. They saw a spirit being in the fire. So in Matthew 16, now you start to see why Jesus will call himself the Son of Man and the Son of God. It's a big deal. So Jesus is the first one to exist in both heaven and earth. He's the first one to both be divine and spiritual. I love to hear that too. Your entire son, yes, um, that's that's why we're having this teaching. <laughs> That's why he is son of God and son of man. And it's a big deal because he is spiritual and physical. He is divine and he is human. So Matthew 16 verse 16. Matthew 16 verse 16. It says, Simon Peter answered, You are Christ, the son of the living God. You are Christ, the Son of the living God. Mark 15, 39. Mark 15, 39. It says, The centurion who stood over against him saw that he so cried out, gave up the ghost. He says, Truly, this man was the Son of God. This man was the Son of God. This man came from God. And when you see that description, the son of God, it's because 
well, let me not get ahead of myself. John 3.18. I'll get there. I want to make sure it's John 3.18. He that believes on him is not condemned. He that does not believe is condemned already. Why? He has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. So now there's a new category. The same way we talked about Elohims and the Elohim. Now we are seeing the description of sons of God and the only begotten son of God. Hmm. Interesting. How is Jesus different from other spiritual beings? He's the only begotten. So, there's an idea in which there's no other like him. He was the only one who was begotten of God, but not like the others. Why? 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 Because he was God. He was God. So, now you're starting to understand John 1.1. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. And so there is a son of God that is in nature and attribute. Like when he was asking that, are we saying that all the aliens? No. There is a son of God. There is a spiritual being apart from the father that exists above all in terms of rank and authority and power. Why? Because he shares the same godly attributes as the father. So verse John 1.18, no man has seen God at any time but the only begotten son who is in the bosom of the father, he has declared him. He has declared him. And that's why in Philippians 2, Philippians 2, it says what? Um, from verse 5, let this mind be you which was in Christ, who being in the form of God, nature, he was a son of God, but in this sense, he was the son of God. He taught it not robbery to be equal with him, with God, but he made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant. So the son of God became a son of man and was made in the likeness of men. And being found as a man, he humbled himself unto death. Verse 9, God has exalted him. That's Daniel's vision. A son of man riding on the clouds of heaven taking all dominion. In Daniel's vision, it was over the kingdoms of the earth. But now in Philippians, it's over, what do we see? That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. In heaven, in earth, under the earth, every tongue should confess. So, whether it's, whether it's the spiritual world, physical, death, Christ has authority over all. Why? Because he's the son of God that became the son of man. Are we understanding this? Are we understanding this? Good. Any questions, concerns, clarifications now? So, okay, good. Okay, it makes sense. So we understand sons of God. We understand the son of God. He's the one begotten of the father. The one through whom everything else was created, but he himself was not. I hope it makes sense. And that's, we're going to Trinity, Trinity territory. He's the son of God. He is a son of God. He is spiritual being, yes, but he's God. And that's what differentiates him. Again, 
listen to journey through colossians we talked about that actually um the divine nature of christ <laughs> very important um i would not go too far into trinity territory because that's not what we're talking about today um i always say yes <laughs> but keep that in mind so Oh, Colossians, yes. So just listen to Journey Through Colossians. We talked at length about it. I explained all of that. But Matthew 28. So now you're starting to see in Matthew 28. Before you'd be like, ah, what's going on? What does just mean? He says what? And now I'm actually starting to round up. Um, so don't worry. We're, we're done. We're almost done. Jesus came and spoke. All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore. So the questions you should start to ask, number one, why in heaven and in earth? Number two, what does all power being given to him have to do with us going? Right? Jesus is saying that there's something that happened when I died and rose from the dead that has given you authority to preach. That has given you authority to go into the world. First of all, when he says in heaven and on earth, with all I've taught you now, we know what that means it means in the spirit realm and in the physical whether it's over angels whether it's over demons all power has been given in the physical whether it's over men nations civilizations all power has been given why because he was both son of god and son of man and that was god's solution remember i told you now god is faced with a problem sons of god have rebelled they are influencing sons of men to rebel how can i fix everything in one soup i have an idea the son of god will become a son of man and bring everything under him that's the answer does it make sense that's what god is doing and so through his death and resurrection god is able to bring everything that's what we did in first corinthians 15 right that he would rule until everything is brought under his feet and then he will hand it back to his father that's god's god is just fixing reality that's that is what is happening that's what is happening. Everything under Christ. And so that's why you would see in Ephesians 6 and 3, like we read last time, Ephesians 3, 9 to 11, right? That he says that he wants to make all men see the fellowship of the mystery. Let me, sorry, let me pause. Ephesians 3, 9 to 11. Go there. What is God's mysterious plan that has not been revealed until now? I explained this in Ephesians, but it's very clear. It says, to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. What is God's ultimate plan? That through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to rulers and authorities in the heavenly places according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished. He did it in Christ. He did it in Christ. What is that plan? That what? Okay, yes. That, so for instance, in Ephesians 1, 20 to 23, it says that he wants, Paul wants us to know the power that's at work in us who believe. That he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand and in the heavenlies so now we have a human a son of man a son of god being exalted to the right hand of god i've explained what right hand means it means you are the one who controls 
the authority and the power. A son of man exalted to the heavens. How did he get there? How is a son of man being able to access the heavenly places? Because he was also a son of God. And that's why he now says in 21, far above all rule, all authority, all power, all dominion, every authority, whether in heaven, whether in earth, God has placed it under his feet and given him to be head to the church. So now it's now we are getting involved. It's no more all this what we've been learning about angels and demons and Christ. Now we are getting involved. This is where you come in. This is where you come in. That by his spirit, you share in his nature. And it's a big deal. That through Jesus, we now exist and rule. Beyond just the physical, we've been made sons of God. John 1.12, as many that believe, he gave them power to be born, to become the children of God. To become the children of God. First John 3. First John 3 verse 1 to 2. He says, How great a love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. That's why that is all these things he's thinking about. That all of a sudden, I'm not just a son of man, I'm a son of God. Ha! It's a big deal. Not just even I, I am in Christ. This <laughs> is good teaching. I don't know when next I'll do it. But <laughs> I'm in Christ, seated with him, far above every other thing. And that's why, that's why he said, that is what we are. 1 John 3 verse 1, that is what we are. It's a nature thing. Son of God is a nature thing. Your nature has changed. And he says, the reason the world does not know us is that it doesn't know him. He says, dear children, now are we the sons of God. He now says, what we will be like, we don't know. Why? Because it's a nature thing. So there's a way, if you see a son of God, you know. <laughs> but it says that the world does not know it yet because we're still, uh, we're still dua, we're uh, stone double or whatever they call it. We're sons of men, we're sons of So the world only sees us as men. But in the eyes of the Spirit, we are both sons of God and sons of men. And that's why it says what we will be like, we don't know. It's a nature thing. But what do we know? It says, when he appears, we'll be like him. Because we'll see him for who he truly is. We'll be like him. We'll be like him. Even Jesus in the resurrection, that's why you see he's able to appear and disappear. He's able to walk through walls, but he's also able to eat. And at the same time, he's able to ascend into the spirit. Think about that. A human now exists in the spirit. We can't find his body. Why? Because the Son of God, it's this is a very terrible analogy, but it's like all those movies you watch where um like the main character has powers of both the normal and the other end, the enemy category, and is able to reconcile both parties. That's a weak analogy for what Jesus did. He is both son of God, son of man, to reconcile both <laughs> my enemy is coming amor. <laughs> yes, like like Neymar. Very weak analogy, but that's the idea. That's the idea. That through Jesus, we've been made to be sons of God. And that's why the angels marvel. That's why the demons are, they are thrown away. Because they never saw it coming. They didn't. They didn't see that coming. 
And the angels are like, wow. Ah, these sons of men that we've been seeing since Genesis, all of a sudden, they are even higher than us in authority. It's mind-blowing. How? Hebrews 2. Hebrews 2, 5 to 10. It says, it is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come. It says, but there is a place where someone testified. David, what is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care? You've made him a little lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor. And now you have put everything under his feet. So he says, we don't see everything under him. We don't see everything subject under man. No. I mean, humanity is clearly still influenced by demons. It says, what do we see in verse 9? We see Jesus. We see Jesus. Who was made a little lower than the angels. Meaning he became a son of man. Now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. Verse 10. In bringing many sons to glory. Does it make sense? God made a way for us to become sons of God. That was always the plan. And he did it through himself. He became a man. Are we getting this? I I hope it's making sense. This is the story of the Bible. As you read now, let this be what is on your mind. When you see heaven, earth, sons of... Like, this is... So that was Hebrews 2, 5 to 10. Hebrews 2, 5 to 10. This is what God is doing. This is how God is making everything right. And that's why in 1 Peter 1 verse 12, it says that even angels are like, what is going on? What is going on? What God has done is a big deal. Very, very big deal. And so now as believers... We go out into the world, Ephesians 28, Ephes- sorry, Ephesians 1, Matthew 28, and we're expressing that authority to the world. People are still blinded, influenced by Elohim, influenced by demons. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, the God of this world has blinded their eyes, lest they should know the come to the glorious knowledge of the gospel of Christ. What is our responsibility? We go in the authority of Christ to proclaim salvation. Because think about it. What that means is that we are in a spirit. It goes back to what we started of our last teaching. We're in spiritual warfare. The kingdom of darkness is fighting to get as many sons of men as possible. But God has done something. Because they are doomed. They've been judged. But God is trying to save man. The story now is about men. God trying to save the sons of men. From the sons of rebel of from rebellious sons. Last last is all family affair. Is Pujas of Kumush. From rebellious sons that have tried to now take his other children, the sons of men. And so we through Christ, the Son of God, are advancing and bringing people back to him. Back to him. Back to him. And so there is a sense in which because of what Christ has done, they have no real power anymore, which was what we talked about, about the whole Prince of Persia thing. Remember, right? Where was the Prince of Persia? In heaven. <laughs> Where was the angel? In heaven. It was all in, in the spirit realm. That's what it means. But now, you say God is like, talk to your brother. <laughs> but now, they have no power anymore. All they have 
All they can do is influence man. Try to influence man or exercise authority on grounds they shouldn't. We are stepping out in Christ's stead to restore that balance through the preaching of the gospel. Where we see an activity of the devil, we put an end to it. That's why we can heal. Right? That's why it was a big deal when Jesus was... It's one thing for Jesus to come and he's stopping the activities of the devil. Okay, we get it. You are the son of God. It's another thing to send people out in his name and we're able to do the same thing. All of a sudden, the devil is like, oh my God, I'm in trouble. (laughs) I'm in big trouble. That is why in Luke 10 verse 18, I know I'm saying a lot. I know I'm saying a lot. It took me a while to understand all of this. And I want you to listen again. Think about these things. But that's why in Luke 10, 18, he's like, so when he will send them out to heal, in 17, he says, the 72 returned with joy. He said, even the demons, do you see that? Even the demons submit to us in your name. And it's because of that that he now said, I saw Satan fall. Because all of a sudden, the devil no longer has a right over the sons of men. All of a sudden, God has put an end to his activities and that of all his, his co-agents. That's why as soon as he says, demons are subject to your name, Satan fell like lightning. Does that make sense? That's why he says, I have given you authority, verse 19, to trample on snakes and scumpers. not about pythons, it's about spiritual, spiritual powers. And to overcome all the power of the enemy, nothing will harm you. However, don't rejoice that spirits submit to you, but rejoice that what? Your names are written in heaven. Rejoice that you are a son of God. The authority you have over these ones is just a byproduct. And it's a good thing. But the big deal is now that what? Your name is in where? Heaven. Is it making sense? Is it making sense? Before you would have read it, oh, it means that when I die, I will go to heaven. No, 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 no. It's much bigger than that. It's much bigger than that. It's not about a place you go to when you die. No. Is that all of a sudden, the sons of men have authority in both the physical and the spiritual. That's a big deal. That's a big deal. (laughs) Amen. Amen. (laughs) All right. So, few verses as we round up. I promise we'll be out of here like 11.30ish. I'm I'm, I'm thankful you've stayed this this far. And I hope it's making sense. We've said a lot today. Um, yes, round, no, there's no part three. It's just those two I to talk about. But I hope it's making sense. <laughs> I, I, I promised you, you will go through a lot. <laughs> and again, I don't expect that it's in one teaching that everything will just, oh, wow, it's, all the dots are connecting. But like I said at the start, number one, this is not even exhaustive. But number two, I just wanted it to be that you, you can start to think about things properly. You can start to think about these things properly. So that's what God is doing through Christ. That's what God is doing through Christ. Now you understand what the mystery is. That's why, it's, that's, it's, that's why it blew the mind of Paul. It blew the mind of angels. It blew the mind of, it blew the mind of everyone. Everyone. That's why you say, had they known, had they known, they would not have crucified because it just made it bad. Before then, 
it was just Jesus, like this God exerting authority over But demons had free reign over the lives and the activities of men. But now, God has done something to put an end to that. Put an end to that. Second Samuel 7. <laughs> Comments out. People are cracking me up. Second Samuel 7. <laughs> Don't worry. Listen again, you'll be found. <laughs> Second Samuel chapter 7. So for instance, um, you read 2 Samuel 7.23. Remember what I said about Elohim's, about them influencing the nations of the world and idols and all of that, right? So 2 Samuel 7.23, even, even David understood this. It says, Who is like your people, Israel? The one nation on earth that God went out to redeem as a people for himself. To make a name for himself to perform great and awesome wonders by driving out nations and their gods from before your people whom you redeemed from Egypt. You have established your people as your own forever and you, O Lord, have become their Elohim. It's the same thing. What God was doing with Israel in the Old Testament is simply a, 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 a pointer or a shadow of what God is doing through his real Israel, the church of God in Christ, Romans 9. Where in the Old Testament, what do we see? Through the wars, through the victory over Egypt, through their journey through the wilderness, Israel was meant to be a nation showing the whole world who the true Elohim was who the true God was. They were his people. They were his people. He was their God. And that is what Jesus has done through the church. God putting the church, or God God making it such that the activities of Christ um, benefited the body, the church, is such that we also, just like Israel, we go out. We go out. God making a name through us, performing great and awesome wonders, driving out gods, false gods. We go into the world and we drive out false gods. We point the heart of people back to the true God. Back to the true God. And that's what these beings are fighting for because at the end of the day, these are nations and world systems that have given the allegiance to them. And so we are the ones set to restore that balance set to restore that balance. So for instance, in 2 Peter 3, 2 Peter 3, from verse 7 to 13, it says, By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of godly ungodly men. But don't forget, with the Lord a day is like a thousand years, a thousand years is like a day. The Lord is not slow, as some understand slowness. Where we read earlier, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear. The elements will be destroyed and the earth will be laid bare. Do you see that? He now says, since everything will be destroyed this way, what kind of people you ought to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and hasten 
it's coming. Second Peter 3, 12. You hasten it's coming. That day will bring about the destructions of the heaven by fire. That's where the idea of hellfire and the demons are thrown into the fire. You get, well, that's want to talk about hell today. Now the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with this promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth. The home of righteousness. Where there will be no rebellious son of God, no rebellious son of man. But the idea there is that there is a sense in which God is being patient for people to be saved. And we can hasten his coming. How? By being the church. By being the church. By preaching the gospel. By getting people saved. By making the devil more and more powerless in reality. Of course, it's the same thing with legal and vital. The devil has no more authority. The only authority we still see is with the lives of people submitted to him. It's our responsibility to strip him of all of that. And so what we see is that, think about it, if there's a sense in which we can quicken the day, what is spiritual warfare now? Demons are simply what? Prolonging the day. By influencing man, by keeping man in sin, they're like, we're going down, but we won't go down together. And we won't go down alone. <laughs> we'll bring everything else on that creation will come down with us. God has already fixed it and God will win. But in the real sense of now, there is that ongoing battle for the hearts of men. That's all that's going on. The, the end is written, the script is done, the movie is over. It was just in that part where the devil and the church fighting for the hearts of men. Fighting for the hearts of men. And that's what it means to be the church. That's what it means to be the body of Christ. To bring all things under his authority. To bring all things under his authority. As we preach, as we stop the devil over his hold of men, his kingdom becomes weaker and God's becomes stronger. And that's why at the end of time, in 1 Corinthians 15, that's what will happen. Everything will be brought under Christ. So again, what is God's ultimate plan? As I round up, Revelations 21, like we started. I saw a new heaven. I saw a new earth. But the first heaven and the earth had passed away. God has judged it. And there was no longer any sea. The sea there refers to Genesis 1. And the Spirit of God was over the waters. The sea refers to that chaos that God brought order to in Genesis 1. There was no more chaos. No more sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. I saw a new city coming out of God. I believe it's clear now. I that's a new people who came from God. That's what Jesus has done. That's the church. The new Jerusalem is the church. <laughs> it's not that you see skyscrapers falling from the sky. Dun, dun, dun. New Jerusalem here. No. The holy city. We are that new Jerusalem. Hebrews already said it. Coming out of heaven. Out of the spirit. From God. That's, that's through the Holy Spirit. Through the sacrifice of Christ. Faith in the gospel. In case you were not still sure what the heavenly Jerusalem is. Prepared as a bride. Dressed beautifully for her husband. Simple. It's the church. 
and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with men. Has that started already? Yes. But there is a sense in which when God judges all evil, God and man coexisting. We saw it in Eden. We see it now in the spirit. The spirit of God lives in us. We are temples of the Holy Ghost. And since he would live with them, they will be his people and God himself will be with them. That's Emmanuel. And will be their God. He would wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. For the old order of things has passed away. Does it make sense now? It's literally what God has done in Christ. Of course, it's not done. It's ongoing. But that is what God is doing. A new heaven, a new earth. God dwelling with us. Heaven on earth. Or heaven and earth becoming one. Amen. 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 Thumbs up. We're officially done. Now it's questions. But does it does it make sense? <laughs> Have I at least stirred your minds up to, to think about heaven, earth differently? Awesome. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Thank you for following. I know it, it takes a lot of mental um, a lot of mental efforts to, to keep by. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Alright, so questions. Now we're going to go into just questions. I think the um, the first uh, question that was asked uh, was about Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 from verse 2 to 4 where he says, I, I know a man in Christ 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Why did Paul say a third heaven? What does, what does that mean? <laughs> he said, I see why you asked for attention for men's day. Um, very simply, right? Very simply, and this is what most scholars agree on. The first heaven is what we see with our eyes, the sky, right? And all we see. The second heaven refers to things beyond the sky. So like the sun, the planets, what you talk about, heavenly bodies, right? And then the third heaven then referred to the realm of the spirits. Um, nowhere in the Bible do we necessarily see seven heavens. Um, I'll just put that there. I, if you disagree, I, I think that's fine. We can have a Bible study about it. But nowhere do we see seven heavens as we usually say. And they'll say, oh, demons are fourth, God, angels fifth, archangel sixth. Uh, 24 elders 6 then God seventh. not necessarily when he said third heaven he was using the descriptive term of their day as how they demarcated heaven so they saw the sky that's heaven they saw where the birds fly that's heaven the birds don't fly where the sun is that's second heaven and then the realm of the spirit even beyond that where God dwells that's the third heaven so Paul was simply saying when he says I was caught up into the third heaven he simply meant I was caught up into the realm of the spirit I hope that makes sense um yeah that is that is uh that uh another question so um sorry even me too i'm starting to feel it <laughs> job what happened in job like we said earlier um the narrator was simply describing supernatural activity based on the theological understanding of their time like i said is satan technically a son of god yes so there's no surprise when you see satan numbered with the sons of God in Job 1. 
But then what Job was more particular about the writer, he's explaining the interplay between God and the devil in the activities of men. And so, um, for instance, in 2 Corinthians 12 verse 7, like we've read many times, where Paul says what? Because of the abundance of revelation, I was given a... a um, let me not misquote it. Let's go there. 2 Corinthians 12 verse 7. A messenger from Satan to torment me. To keep me... So, let me read from the NKJV. Lest I should be ex- exalted above measure by the abundance of revelation, a thorn in the flesh was given, a messenger of who? Satan. To buffet me, lest I be exalted. So, number one, who gave Paul the revelations? It was God. Who gave? Who made Job who he was? It was God. Then, where did the suffering come from? It's the devil. It was the devil that made Job suffer. It's a messenger of Satan that's tormenting Paul. Was God aware of both? Yes. <laughs> so that's what Job was describing. That's literally what the book of Job was describing. God was like, I mean, Paul prayed three times and God said, Oh God, I'm not taking this away. I will give you strength. In Job's case, after a few rounds, God changed the whole situation about uh, around. But the question is, was God faithful to both of them? Yes. So the whole narration of Job and, sorry, God and the devil was simply a narrative explanation of how the devil is still subject to God and how God is able to use evil to accomplish good. That's that's pretty much what Job is about and how we can learn to trust. Pretty much everything I said in the first one hour of today's teaching is what the book of Job is all about. It's similar to 1 Kings. You can read it when you get home. 1 Kings 22, 13 to 28. 1 Kings 23. 1 Kings 22, 13 to 28. The story of how um, Israel had rebelled. God wanted to judge, I believe it was Ahab, um, if I remember correctly. And God is like, how would we uh, get Ahab to, to mess up? And then a lying spirit said, I will go and deceive them. And then it says a lying spirit from God. We know. So the question is, did the lying spirit come from God? In a sense, yes. In a sense, no. No, in the sense in which God cannot incite evil every good and every perfect gift comes from god but in another sense so god did not make them lie demonic influence did is there lying in god no however it was a demonic activity that god was aware of and used it for his purposes of judging israel it's that simple right it's that simple it's the same thing first chronicles 21 verse 1 write that down first chronicles 21 verse 1 Second Samuel 24, verse 1. In, in uh, Samuel, I believe it says that the anger of God was risen against David and he caused David to take a census. In Chronicles, it says the devil, Satan, led David to take a census. Are they contradictory? Of course not. Of course not. The answer is simple. David had misbehaved. Israel was misbehaving. God wanted to judge Israel. God handed Israel over to the consequences of their actions, the devil took advantage, led David to mess up, and God stepped in. Simple. God tempts, um, sorry, Satan tempts, not God. Satan tempts, not God. Satan tempts, not God. How do you know which is which in what sense? So, like, um, from what you've explained today, mm. like, when you're going through 
maybe a difficult situation in your life mm. and you're trying to like just trying to understand like is this something I should be worrying about because this is the devil like trying to mess with me or god is trying to teach me a lesson from whatever it is that I'm going through like um so I didn't say god is trying to teach you a lesson in whatever case it's the devil you can be sure it's the devil it's not god in any instance what i said was that you need the discernment to know how god is going to respond to that situation sometimes his response to crisis is to take it away sometimes it's to strengthen you to go through it neither cases are the is the situation from god right it's from the devil my point was simply don't fall into either extremes where on one hand you believe god is always averting crisis and so when he does not you you now break down and say where is god god is no more real or don't fall into the other extreme where you are so passive that you believe everything is only i should go through it no and that's why i started with what i said that faith sometimes the situation changes sometimes it might not our job is to discern what god is doing in that moment if so paul prayed three times do you get until he got to a clear point of discernment where he's like okay this situation is not going to change i might as well start to pray for other things do you get and it was that i would strengthen you through it sometimes it's that it will change right for peter the situation changed for james he was killed um our 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 responsibility is to gain that wisdom to to receive and to trust that this is what god is doing now so whether it is this sickness i know it is not the will of god i will pray until i see a change if it's persecution and you keep praying like there's no example where it's like ah, god doesn't no 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 um yeah my point is you keep praying and trusting the goodness of god but there is a framework to which we can understand even when our prayers don't seem to be answered that's what i'm trying to say uh, i hope that makes sense uh any other questions <laughs> hi Daniel. Hi, Daniel. Yeah. yeah. So, my question is about the whole heaven thing. When the Revelation 21 says that the first heaven, what heaven is that referring to? Mm. And like the heaven that we're all going to. I know it says in new heaven, but I'm wondering, like, is it does it exist already, or? I mean, when <laughs> is the second coming of Jesus that it will exist? Mm. Good question. Uh, first, the first one, the first heaven and first earth is what we see now. The current state of the world, both spiritual and physical, made up of both beings that are submitted to God and beings that are not. In humanity, we see the church submitted to God. We see the world not. In the spirit realm, we see angels and the rest submitted to God. We see demons not. That's the first heaven and the first earth. The new heaven and the new earth would come at the end of all time when God has finally judged the world. And that is that there would be no more rebellion, no more sin and the effects of sin. So the new heaven and the new earth hasn't come yet. It just simply means like 
even after like after the judgment of all things in Christ, there will still be angels. There would still be all the glorious beings we see described, the cherubims, the seraphims, and foils, and all of that. They're still going to exist. And we would still be sons of men and sons of God. At no point do we lose our humanity because Jesus is man forever. <laughs> in case you're not aware. Um, so there will be a new heaven and a new earth. It just means that God is going to make every like God is going to reset the state of reality, that there will be a spirit space with beings that are only submitted to God. No more devil, no more spiritual beings, blah, blah, blah. And negative spiritual beings. And there would also be the physical space, right? Um, with people solely submitted to God. So that's the idea. And in terms of timing, it's when Christ returns. Um, thank you. And one more question. So like um, in John 14, um, verse 3, where he says, my father's house, is that... That is referring to the new heaven, right? I'm mean, I'm just trying to I'm trying to understand. yeah. Um, John fourteen two. In my father's house there are many mansions. There, if you were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. So, um, not necessarily in the sense in which uh, my father's house refers to my father's family, right? Um, that is every submitted to God do you understand of course prior to Christ that's angels and it just refers to God's spiritual God's family in heaven and on earth in my father's house there are many mansions the word house is the word money um the the word mansions just means dwelling places well, am I mixing it up my mind is tired I apologize um <laughs> uh, so, um, yeah, sorry. In my father's house, or Ikea, my fa- mansions, Monet, house, household, family, mansions, dwelling places. And so what Jesus was simply saying, maybe we'll do it John 14. I love John 14, 15, and 16 so much. Jesus is simply saying that in my father's family, there are many dwelling places, meaning there's room for more people. Right, there's a lot of space you can come into my father's house, and he's saying that if it were not so, I would have told you, but it's so, so I didn't say otherwise. I go, meaning by my death, burial, and resurrection, to prepare a place for you. Meaning, because I died, I was buried and I rose from the dead. I I have made it possible for you guys to be a part of my father's house. I hope that makes sense. And so what Jesus is simply saying is that, is what I said earlier, that through the death, burial, resurrection, and Jesus, um, we are now included in God's family. He said that later, right, that I and the Father, we will come and we would make our home, our abode in them. John 14, 20, in that day, in the day when the Spirit is poured out, you will know that I am in my Father you are in me and I am in you. Right? So the idea there, it's not really about the new heaven or new earth. Of, of course, anything submitted to God in the in the current heaven will be passed over to the new heaven, right? So in that sense, you don't have to worry yourself about which one of the heavens it is. Like I said, the new heaven and the new earth is in the resurrection, sorry, in the consummation of all things in Christ at the end of the age. Right now, what we know from John 14 is that we are in the father's household because jesus died 
and rose from the dead. We are part of God's spiritual family, which is why in Hebrews 12, it says you've come to the assembly of the saints, the new Jerusalem, angels, right? That's the father's family. I pray to God, the father of, of, of the family in heaven and on earth, Ephesians 3, right? I hope that makes sense. Yes, it does. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Any other questions? All right. <laughs> I will not assume that everything I've said today, <laughs> you got it all at once. But I, I do hope it was worth your time. Um, I'll pray. We'll share the benediction. And next week, we would resume First Thessalonians 4. Please listen to today's teaching again. Take notes. Go over your notes. Go the What I said you should do, do it. Actually do a word study of heaven. Do a word study of sons of God. Do a word study of Elohim. Just, just, go, just go through it. Just go through it. Just go through it. And you would see it will be very clear. And that is now the perspective. Think about what we read. Reread Ephesians with what I've said. Read Ephesians again. Where Paul talks about the mystery and you're wondering why he's this excited. It will start to make sense. Reread Colossians. If you can't reread, listen to Journey Through Ephesians again. Listen to Journey Through Colossians again. Right? At the end of the day, the Bible is an entire body of work that shapes the way we see reality. And I hope that that's what today's teaching has at least started to do. Right? All right. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for today's teaching. Thank you for lessons learned, lessons for things unlearned. Thank you for your word. I pray that we are able to humble ourselves to receive your word for what it is. And I pray that we are able to apply it to our lives. I thank you for what you've done in Christ. That we are made sons of God. I thank you. I thank you for how you have healed humanity, healed the heavens of, this, of sin and rebellion and its consequences. And I pray that we have that strength, that wisdom, that boldness to go out in your name and share this message to a dying world. I thank you because indeed we've been blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. We've been... We've been we, we died with you, we're raised with you, and we're made to sit with you far above every principality and power right there in heaven. I thank you because right now, even now, we are sons of God. Even now, our names are written in heaven. And even now, we walk in that authority and dominion we have received in you. I pray that we're able to share this message with the world. In Jesus' name. Amen. 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 All right. Let us uh, take our benediction. So graciously prepared to us <laughs> by Buki and Ayo. Um, I'll share my screen. You're welcome. Hold on. Give me a second. My laptop crashed over the week, so... 
I'm resetting everything. Uh, All right. <laughs> now we see my screen. Let's unmute ourselves. I think after a teaching like today, <laughs> we have to say it well. <laughs> One, two, go. I am a Say the first part again. By the word, I am By the word, I am And in the word, hallelujah hallelujah thank you all for your time don't worry next week we go back to regular teachings <laughs> but i hope it was worth your time have a great week i will see you next week